You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. morning church. My name is Ronald Perez. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church and uh, I did not plan for the AC to be off this morning Uh, but God in his sovereignty allowed it to happen as an immediate application of today's text which we are studying contentment. So uh, so you're welcome. You get to get to apply it already. Well let's get into it. Imagine with me, picture with me if you would, A crisp December morning. The bacon is crackling. The eggs are sizzling. There's some fresh squeezed orange juice on the breakfast table. And coming right off of the frying pan is some French toast, sprinkled with powdered sugar and pure maple syrup. Not the fake Aunt Jemima stuff, the the corn syrup, no offense if you like that, but the real stuff. And little Billy is gorging his, his face with this breakfast made for royalty. He's hurrying up because he wants to get to the main course, the presents. In case you haven't guessed, it's Christmas morning. And little Billy starts to open up his presents and he's filled with excitement. He's opening up everything he's ever wanted, an embarrassment of riches. He's got his new shoes that he's been wanting, the gift card he's been wanting to the restaurants and the shops that he's been wanting. He got the new gadget he's been wanting, as well as the gadgets that accompany the gadgets. I mean, he's gotten so many things. But as he continued to unwrap presents, his heart began to sink little by little. Eventually, he got to the end, and he was left disappointed, sad. You could hear it in his voice just with a tinge of wine. He says, but Dad, where's my MacBook Pro? The one I've been telling you all about, I wanted it. The kid is left in tears. Even though he had all these blessings and all these gifts and all these riches, he was left discontent. He could not see he was blinded by an unfulfilled desire, even though he had all these gifts and all these blessings. Now we hear this story and maybe we scoff, maybe we even judge this little kid, but the reality is is that we are this child. We all experience discontentment when we don't get what we want, even when there's blessings to count around us, right? We've all felt it before, that gnawing, clawing feeling of discontentment. It doesn't matter your your station in life, rich or poor, educated or not, married or single, lonely or full of friends, healthy or sick, we're all prone to discontentment. That's just the natural bent of our hearts. We're all prone to think, I need more, or this needs to change, or my life can't go on unless this is out of it or in it right? Unless you think this doesn't apply to you, let's go through this little exercise. Stop right now and think about it. How would you finish this sentence? I can't be happy unless I have blank. Or I can't be happy unless blank changes, whether it's a person or a circumstance. However you answer those sentences, Those fill in the blanks hold a control over your heart that God would not have for you or for me. Quite the opposite. 
God is inviting you into a life of joy and contentment in him today, that he might be on the throne of our hearts, not material possessions or people, not letting those things rule us. And so I can already feel the question bubbling up in your heads and hearts. Okay, so I'm just supposed to put on a, like a fake smile and just pretend that there's not a thousand different things I'd want to change about my life, right? I mean, I, I wanna get married, I want a better job, I want a bigger bank account, that'd be nice. I wanna read my Bible more consistently, I wanna be in better relationship with my family, I wanna be more fit and healthy. These are certainly all good things I should uh, 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 strive for, right? Well, should we just be happy with our current condition and have no ambition, is that sinful? No, the answer is, is no. Contentment doesn't mean that we grit our teeth and pretend everything is perfect. But the call to contentment does mean that we as Christians can march on in life with a quiet certainty that God has provided us all we need for life and godliness. In light of that, it might help if we define terms here. What do Christians mean by the word contentment? The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs has a, a great famous book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a great book, it's dense, uh, it's small but dense, and the title already reveals a lot, right? It's rare, that means it's difficult to find, hard to get, and it's a jewel, it's precious, it's something of great worth, this idea of contentment. And in his book, he defines it uh, this way, and it's a good summary of what biblical contentment looks like. I want us to come back to it over and over in the sermon, but I'd love for us to keep it in our back pocket just for the rest of our Christian lives, frankly, because this will be a fight of faith that we will fight in the pursuit of contentment. Here's what Christian contentment is. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So there we have it. That is what we're striving towards in this sermon and in our Christian lives. Now, it doesn't help, of course, that every single bit of media that we consume has some form of advertisement that's constantly blaring a message of discontentment. You want a healthy and complete life? Try these vitamin supplements. You want supermodel level beauty? Then subscribe to this magazine and we'll give you all the tips and tricks to make that happen. Everything in this world is incentivizing discontentment but let's not put all the blame on the world, right? Our own souls, our own hearts are constantly trying to lure us to find contentment and satisfaction in material things, in earthly things. But the truth is, is that we'll never find satisfaction in material things because we weren't made for that. We were made to find our wholeness, our completeness, our satisfaction in God himself, and he offers us himself. Now, God did not create us to be perpetually dissatisfied, and yet here we are, right? Always in search for the next thing that might give us that high of satisfaction, the next thing that might manufacture something that was only meant to be cultivated by God's very own spirit in us. He created us to be complete in him and tell the world that God himself, he satisfies the hungry soul, it says in the Psalms. And so that's what we'll be looking at today how to achieve, how to attain contentment in an age of discontent. And to do this, we'll be looking at the master of contentment himself, Paul. 
We'll be turning to Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20 and studying that today. And while you're turning there, I'll uh, give a bit of context since we're jumping into the end of a book here in Philippians. Philippians 4, 10 through 20. In this letter, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's writing from jail, actually, admittedly a really hard place circumstantially to be writing from. Even so, he's super excited. He's rejoicing. This is often referred to as the letter of joy because Paul is often commanding and reflecting on the reality that there's much to rejoice about in the Christian walk. And these Philippians, they're dear, dear friends. They sent someone who was like a brother to Paul, Epaphroditus. They sent financial aid. They were praying for Paul. They were very consistent and deliberate in their pursuit of Paul to make sure he had every need supplied for his missionary journeys, for his task to advance the gospel to all nations. These guys were not just giving Paul a pat on the back in prayer. Again, they were thoughtful and deliberate and persistent. This is the highest level of Christian generosity and care. And so Paul, we know, is writing to dear friends, and he's finishing out the letter with these words we're about to read today, words of thanksgiving and encouragement. So with the table set, let's read the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received the gift from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the first point to note is this, if you're taking notes, contentment is always possible. Contentment is always possible. Paul finds great solace in the Philippian church. Indeed, we see in verse 10, when he hears from them, he rejoices to know they really do care for him. Imagine him in a jail cell, down and out, feeling lonely. Do people really remember me, care for me, love me? And he receives this gift. He receives Epaphroditus. So he's rejoicing here. Even so, the Philippians' love and care is not what sustains Paul. Paul does not ground his joy and hope in the financial and relational support he's receiving here. Now look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's kind of world-shaking what he's saying here if you stop and think about it. It's insane. He's saying, I have no needs. I'm good. I mean, there's something profound happening here, and I suspect it's something fairly foreign to most of us. Now, remember our definition from Burroughs. 
Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You see this in Paul's words in verses 11 through 13. This is a, a mindset, a perspective, a demeanor that freely submits to, but not only submits to, it delights in what God is doing in his life, no matter what is happening, no matter where it's taking him. It's a peace that exists apart from any particular circumstances. This idea that we can be happy and content without any consideration of our earthly circumstances, frankly, sounds like a fairy tale to most of us, I imagine. Most of us operate on what can be called conditional contentment, which is really not contentment at all when you put it up against the definition we're looking at, right? We say, I can be content if God would but give me a husband or a wife. If he would give me that new job I've really been wanting, then I'd be content. If he'd give me obedient children or if he heals me of these diseases, then I'd be content. God, if you would but bend your will to match my will and submit, I'd be content. But Paul is saying something different here. He's saying my heart can be glad, satisfied, and at peace no matter what problems may come my way. I'm good. And just as Paul said that, we can say that as Christians. He's not exaggerating here either. He's not speaking from bravado or ignorance. Paul had a sorrowful and a hard life. He's speaking from experience. He knows he can have contentment in these things. And what Paul is talking about is fundamentally different from the picture we often have in our heads of contentment, right? When we say someone is content, we often imagine, let's say, a, a cottage uh, on a mountainside. You wake up, you put on your robe and slippers, it's nice and cool outside, your spouse is cooking breakfast, you grab a warm cup of coffee, it's like a Folgers commercial, and you walk outside, the birds are chirping, the wind is blowing in your face, the sun's beaming down, you take a sip, and you're just like, life is good. I'm content, right? We, we tend to imagine something like that. We don't tend to look at a life full of hardship and turmoil and think, that guy, that girl is content. They must be happy. They must be satisfied. But look at what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Contentment can abound. He can face beatings, imprisonment, starvation, relational betrayal, or he could have all the care and comforts of the world, the highs and the lows, the full spectrum of life circumstances and situations he can experience, and he can have contentment. It doesn't matter because contentment is not conditional on what is going on around him. And again, the same can be true for us. Now, you might be saying, okay, that sounds amazing. I'd love to have more of that. I'd love to be able to live like that. So how do I move from conditional contentment into Christian contentment, what Paul's talking about here? Well, that leads us to our second point. First, we learn contentment is always possible. Second, we learn contentment is learned. Notice in verses 11 and 12, one verb that gets repeated twice. Can you spot it? You can cheat and look at the point, I guess. Learned, learned. Paul learned contentment. He learned the trick or the secret to finally being at peace with whatever trials came his way. You know, it's easy to equate contentment as some kind of a personality trait. You know, uh, that person is introverted. 
uh, versus extroverted. They're just different. They're wired differently. That person is prone to melancholy. You know, they're just kind of sad in their approach to, to many things. And that person's easy, laid back. He's just a content individual. I wasn't born that way. I need my creature comforts in order to be happy, in order to be content, you know? But the Bible expressly rejects that idea. Contentment is not an innate personality trait. It's a character trait that is learned. And we as Christians are to be trained and equipped by the Spirit for it. We're to strive for it. So how did Paul learn contentment? And how can we do the same? Now, there's lots of layers to this, but one of the fundamental ways Paul learned contentment was by looking at his needs through a scriptural lens. He learned to take what the world and his own heart had to say about his needs and filter it through the scriptures, filter it through the truths and promises of God, that the truths and promises of God might inform his needs. Let's look at a few of those truths now that we might be trained up in contentment. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but hopefully enough of a primer to get us going in the journey towards contentment in Christ. First is this, remember God is all you need. Remember God is all you need. Paul uses the word need in the passage that we're looking at today, mostly in a financial and a material sense. When he says needs, his needs have been met, he means that he is materially covered. He has enough. He didn't need any more money or possessions, yet we inherently kind of buck against this. We could always use more money, right? I mean, was, was Paul a trust fund baby? Was he just secretly rich? Or was he just reckless with his finances? This is an opportunity to fundraise some more, put some money away for a rainy day. What's Paul saying here? Why is he responding this way? You see, Paul understood Hebrews 13, 5. Hebrews 13, 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Money makes people funny, if you've heard that uh, saying before. It's true. And the reason is, is love of money is often the direct enemy of contentment. Why? Because money is often a stand-in for God himself. Now, we don't say this explicitly often, but we think it and we inherently believe it a lot of the time. If we have enough money, then we have enough control. And if we have enough control, then we don't need God. And frankly, we don't need anyone. We can live our lives as we please. The pursuit and love of money is often a means for us to gain control, for us to work our way into a position where we don't need to depend on God. Now, the reality is, is that that's a fleeting fantasy. We will never own enough or have enough to be full, true masters of our destiny. It's just not how God has arranged the world. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in the same verse in 13.5, the remedy to rejecting a love of money and finding contentment is in recognizing that God will never leave us or forsake us. God is with us already, so why do you think you need the riches to provide the peace and the protection that God is already there to provide? God is enough. And the more we remember and believe that, the more our contentment will be fueled by that truth, that God will never leave us or forsake us. Number two, 
growing in contentment, being trained for it, means that we recalibrate our needs. Recalibrate our needs. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. Now here, Paul is speaking against enemies of the church. People who were teaching falsehoods and they were thinking that, that their outward righteousness was great gain. That they could make a lot of money if, if they would pretend to be very righteous and have people follow them and people would give them a ton of money. They thought becoming pastors was a get-rich-quick scheme. Newsflash, if you want to make a lot of money, do not become a pastor. That's not the, not the best way to do it. But they seem to think so. And here's Paul responding with a play on words. Godliness is great gain when paired with contentment. And then he says, if he has food and clothing, he will be content. That's a pretty low bar though, right? We hear that and we kind of, kind of jump back a little bit. We're like, that's, that's gotta be the floor, right? Like food and clothing. Surely that, that can't be the, the sum total of what Paul is talking about here. I mean, think about all the other things we think we need for contentment. A new wardrobe each year, a new car lease every three years, vacations to exotic places a few times a year, a flex budget to eat out whenever we want each week. When we define needs in the place of wants, discontentment soars. Because we want a lot of things and we don't always get what we want. We need to recalibrate our needs to recognize we don't actually need that much for life and godliness. That's what Paul's saying here. We must disentangle our wants from our needs because they are worlds apart. Is there something you've been wanting so bad in your life that it has just consumed you, consumed your thoughts, consumed your emotions, to the point that it is drawing you away from others, from responsibilities to love and serve? Is there something you need that you say with this visceral kind of uh, strength that you say, I need this? Stop and think. Do you really need it? What is the worst that can happen if you don't get it? And this is a, a constant exercise with my kids. Anyone who's had young kids or has young kids, you know this. Dad, I need ice cream. Dad, I need you to stop what you're doing right now and come over here and watch me do a cartwheel. Dad, I need this toy. And often, hopefully, as patiently as I can, I say, okay, let's start from the beginning. Do you need those things or do you want those things? Because those are two very different things. This is so often the case for us. We need to adjust our expectations for what material things and for what people have to offer. And we need to pursue a simpler life recognizing that we don't need much for life and godliness. Contentment will follow. The more we believe that, the more we live that out, the more contentment will follow. Third, we wanna cultivate gratitude for the needs that have already been met. Cultivate a gratitude for the needs that have already been met. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Gratitude is one of the most powerful weapons in our battle against discontentment. At the heart of discontentment is an unthankful heart, a heart that does not acknowledge God's sovereign and good hand in all circumstances. 
But here we have Paul's explicit command to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, if you've tried to do this, you'll quickly recognize that this does not come natural. It's kind of a little joke, but sometimes in the morning here on Sunday services, we have a prayer of thanksgiving. One of the instructions we give, and I've had to do it too, and it's hard, is for the prayer of thanksgiving, just pray thanksgiving. It is so hard at times to do that. You just want to sneak in a couple requests in there. And that's just the natural bent of our heart, right? But if you try and do this, if you try and cultivate a heart of gratitude, it takes work. It takes practice. It takes practice to train our eyes and our minds to see God's many blessings, both visible and invisible, known and unknown, remembered and taken for granted. The fact that we are living, moving, and breathing is already grace upon grace from the God who sustains our very breath. We deserve none of it. God owes us nothing, believe it or not. And yet in his mercy and grace, he gives us abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. The more we recognize that we have no right to any of the blessings we receive, the more thankful we will be for the good things we do experience. Instead of grumbling about what we don't have, we will grow in contentment for the unmerited kindness of God in Christ Jesus and all the other blessings he's given us. Praise God that he gives us good things for our enjoyment, it says in 1 Timothy 6. He does. There's good gifts that a good father gives. So every time we're tempted to discontentment, take stock of the blessings you have received and praise God. Contentment will be the natural overflow of a grateful heart. Fourth, release your needs to God. I tried to keep all R's, but it was tough to do that on third. Release your needs to God. Just a few verses earlier from our passage today in Philippians 4, Paul is hinting again at the secret of contentment. Here in verses 6 through 7, he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He starts off with this commandment. Don't be anxious about anything. And if you're like me, you, you kind of shrivel up and you're like, yikes. I'm a ball of anxiety a lot of the time. But here's this explicit command. Don't be anxious about anything. The reality is, is that life will tempt us to anxiety. Are you going to have enough to pay the bills? Will I make it in time for this meeting? What will my friends think of me if I talk to them about Jesus? Paul's remedy to this is prayer to God. Prayer granted him access to the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It did that for him, it will do the same for us. This is like a peace that defies reason or reasonableness. It is, to put it another way, an unreasonable peace. Anyone looking from the outside into the troubles and turmoils of our life should say, how can you endure so much and yet still have peace? Are you off your meds? Are you on meds? Like, like it doesn't make sense. How can I reconcile you going through this and you responding this way in peace? When we are prayerless, anxiety and discontentment abound. Why? It's because we're trying to meet all our needs on our own. Prayerlessness might not seem that way on the, on the outside, but prayerlessness is a form of pride in our, in our lives. 
God, I don't need you to take care of this. I will take care of this myself. Or perhaps I don't think you'll take care of it the way I want it to be taken care of, so I'm just gonna go ahead and do this myself. And so what happens is we lead prayerless lives and we grow in anxiety because we're trying to solve all our problems on our own, in our own strength. But when we learn to pray to God in Christ for our needs, not tritely, not like a checklist, like, okay, God, I told you what I needed, now I'm gonna go off and, and do my thing. But when we pray earnestly, structured and guided by scripture, and often, we will find contentment being built up in us as we trust God will meet our needs. Which leads us to our third and final point. So far we've learned contentment is possible. It's always possible. Contentment is learned. And now we see that contentment is empowered by God. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now let me uh, address the elephant in the room because this is a really famous verse. I imagine most people, Christian and non-Christian, have heard this one before. This isn't necessarily a football verse. This isn't something to pray before you are about to accomplish some superhuman feat of strength. This is primarily a verse about endurance, about the faith that comes from God alone, about the ability to withstand the storms of life and still remain standing on the rock of Christ. When Paul says he can do all things, he means he can endure any possible life event that might come his way. He can endure it and he could submit to it and delight in it. He can have contentment. God will give him strength to endure. And this is the key to everything we've studied today. Only God will be able to fuel this kind of contentment we've talked about. If you try to live a life of contentment in your own life, you end up with like an imitation grade contentment won't last very long, it'll break and crumble under the pressures of life. And yet, this is something we often try to do. We try to, to pursue contentment in our own strength. What does that look like? Well, we might try to minimize our troubles. We might say to ourselves, think of the starving kids in Africa. You don't have it so bad, so, so just pretend you don't have any problems or needs. But this doesn't work. This just minimizes our need and dependence on God to come and rescue us. Christian contentment is based on a greater reliance on God, not less. We shouldn't minimize our problems. In fact, we should be taking them to God, full and raw and real as they are, recognizing that he can bear that weight. So we might not minimize our troubles. Maybe we'll uh, maximize our effort. I'm going to work to rearrange my life until I'm content. I'm gonna set the right schedule, I'm gonna change this around, I'm gonna start working out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do everything I think that will make me happy in order to be content. I'm just gonna brute force it. But this misses the mark too. Remember, Christian contentment is not about changing circumstances, it's about changing our hearts. So maybe we don't minimize troubles or maximize effort, maybe we just go ahead and ignore the problems altogether. Don't worry. Be happy. Let go and let God. I'm not going to think about it. I'd rather be ignorant of a problem, pretend it's not there, and that'll leave me happy and content, satisfied. This type of mindset seeks to create contentment by avoiding any trouble or problems in your life. The problem here, of course, is that life will continue on and the storm will come and shake and rumble the still waters of your soul, whether you want to address it or not, whether you want to believe it's there or not. Problems will come. See, contentment doesn't just happen. 
and it won't happen in our own strength. It needs to be empowered by the strength God provides. Okay, so, so if you're with me still, you, you might say, how exactly does God empower that kind of contentment? Well, one of the sources of that strength is found primarily in a promise, in verse 19. Verse 19 in Philippians 4 says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Just as God had supplied Paul's needs as he pours himself out for others in ministry, he recognizes that that same God will be with the Philippians as they pour themselves out for others as they are generous with their resources. Paul is recognizing God as Jehovah Jireh, God the provider, the one who makes a way, the one who meets our needs. Paul is saying, we can be content, not because we don't need our needs. This isn't some kind of mind trick or psychological twisting of the terms. We can be content because our needs are met by God himself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will take care of you? Because in proportion to the reality that you believe that, your contentment will be present. Contentment is possible because all our most fundamental needs have been, have been and will be met by God. But then the question arises, that sounds nice and pretty on paper, right? What does that mean when real trials and struggles come my way? Not just when someone cuts me off or I'm a little late to a meeting, but what if I lose my job? What if my kid gets really, really sick? What if I get into a car crash and I'm crippled and I cannot provide? What if, I'm, uh, what if I have a spouse who's cheating on me and wants to leave me? What then? Is God, is God gonna fix all these problems or meet my needs in the midst of them? Meaning my tangible, physical, and immediate needs? Or is he just gonna prevent these problems altogether? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what Paul is necessarily talking about or what is being promised. And here's why. Look back at verse 12. Verse 12 says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul had needs that were not met. I mean, that much is obvious. He's literally writing this letter from jail and referencing in many of his other letters all the intense miseries and trials that he has had to endure. So then why is this promise such a bomb, such a comfort to Paul? What good is the promise from God to supply our needs if he doesn't supply the things we perceive to be our needs? What is Paul saying here? Paul is making a statement here about God's normative expression of care for his people. It is the normal course of God's grace and goodness that his people would be provided for as they seek to care and provide for others. Just like the Philippians cared for Paul out of their limited resources, God himself would care for the Philippians and would care for us out of his infinite resources. That's what he's getting at in verse 19. And when it seems that a need is not being met, there's a quiet calm and peaceful resignation that God might be withholding some good for some time in order to accomplish some greater good elsewhere. This kind of contentment is confident in God to meet tangible needs and confident in God's work even when those needs are not immediately met. Both are true. 
God is taking care of our needs, and even if he doesn't, he will still work good in some way. We see a glimpse of this kind of contentment in 2 Corinthians 12.10. Again, Paul writing. He says this in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says he's content with weaknesses. This is a self and inward issue. He's also content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, outside circumstantial issues. For when he is weak, then he is strong. You see, when discontentment tries to come from within or without, Christian contentment wins. God's spirit empowering us for that wins. Like an overwhelming force meeting an immovable object, the object remains. Like turbulent waves of trouble crashing on the rocks of our soul, the soul remains strong when God's strength is fueling our contentment. Now, the end goal is not a comfortable life. The end goal in Paul's mind, biblically, is worship and enjoyment of God. And that's what Paul has in view, a life that is able to worship God through comfort or affliction, abundance or need, come what come may. Now, it's important to note that when Paul seeks to describe God's riches, the measure of his power and wealth, he defines it according to the glory of Christ Jesus. As if to say God's mercy, power, and generosity are perfectly displayed in Christ. They are not defined by your circumstances. So precious and valuable is Christ that earlier in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8, Paul says this. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Christ is so majestic, so beautiful, of such supreme worth to Paul that everything good in his life, every need met, every comfort given, every achievement made was considered garbage, worthless, compared to what? Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Paul had everything he needed in Christ, and this was the secret of his contentment. Paul was overwhelmed with a vision of Christ, his majesty and his power, his goodness and his grace. It drove everything he did. Christ was his purpose, his passion, his Lord, his supreme treasure. And you can sense that in this letter as he seeks to convey Christ's worthiness to others. Like I said before, this is a letter of joy even in the midst of so much trouble and turmoil in his life. You see, the, the remarkable thing was is that Paul's life on the outside was pretty miserable. It was rough. He gives testimony to it. Like if you or me heard of someone's life like that today, you'd be like, man, what a pity. Like, that, that's so sad. That's so, I, I feel bad for the guy. Yet Paul, he knew the truth of 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10. I'd like us to turn there and read. Let me read for that here as, read for us here as a testimony of what the Christian life in contentment should look like and sound like. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10, Paul writing again. Working together with him then, 
we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is our calling, Grace Church. I don't know what individual trials or struggles the Lord has you in right now, but I do know that contentment is possible in that situation. Satisfaction in Christ can be learned and the teaching material is offered freely to us through the might and truth of his word. May we be a church that is able to endure the struggles of everyday life. It's not easy, but God gives us everything we need. So what is it? What is the one thing you cannot let go of? What is your MacBook Pro on Christmas morning? The one thing where you say, God, I'm angry you haven't given me this. God, I'm angry at you because you took this away from me. Take those things to God in prayer, even now. Wrestle with him and see him win with this truth. My God will supply all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit Grace Church. Dot Miami.